Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you who were here last week, you may recall that uh, Steve explained that he and John both were planning on being out of town today, and uh, they had contemplated perhaps just canceling the class since there are other classes available, but then uh, one or both of them got the idea to, to ask me to fill in, and so here I am. Um, so just remember uh, that uh, this, this is designed to be uh, at least better than nothing, so keep that better than nothing idea in the front of your uh, mind as, as we go through the class today, and we'll, we'll see how this works. And um, what I'd like to do is we're in Acts chapter 16 today, and uh, if I could get someone to read beginning at verse 6 and up through verse 12 in chapter 16, please. Uh, thank you, Coffee. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been bidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Okay, well thanks. That's... I wanted to get us up to the point to where they're in Philippi, which is, is where most of the action in this chapter is set. And first, just give you a little bit of background about what this uh, city of Philippi was and, and how it came to be the way it is. Uh, none of this is really central to the gospel text here, but I, I th when you think of Paul's journey and you know they're, they're, he's bouncing around all throughout Asia Minor and, and to these different islands and places, and, and it can all kind of blur. And you just sort of sometimes when you read this, you think of it as just being, oh, well, he's sort of in the eastern Mediterranean somewhere, you know, and you think of all these places as being more or less alike. But Philippi uh, is kind of an interesting place. It's in Macedonia in Greece, but it's a very, very Roman place by this time. And the reason for it is this, there, there was already a city there, but um, about 90 years earlier, um, in about 42 BC in October, three weeks apart, there were two major, major battles that occurred at Philippi and, and around that area. And, and you had this very unusual group of um, Romans that were basically fighting the, the first of a couple of Roman civil wars. Uh, and you had on the one hand uh, Octavian and Mark Antony uh, versus the forces of Brutus and Cassius. And a lot of these names may sound a little familiar to you if you remember your Shakespeare because in, in Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar, uh, this battle is actually you know, part of the action in that play. Um, Julius Caesar had an adopted son, Octavian, who later becomes Caesar Augustus, who's emperor of the Roman Empire at the time Jesus is born. And he and Mark Antony were um, 
seeking to sort of preserve uh, the, the sort of nation Roman Empire that had emerged from the old Republic. Uh, Brutus and Cassius were trying to uh, keep it a Republic and that's, that's why they assassinated, participated in the assassination of Julius Caesar. So this is kind of a revenge, you know, on the part of Octavian and his buddy Mark Antony. And so you've got legions and legions of Roman soldiers on both sides. You've got fleets of ships that are resupplying these armies by sea. It's, it's a major, major logistical deal and uh, a couple of big battles that occur about 20 days apart in the, in the forces of Octavian and Anthony prevail over Cassius and Brutus who were sort of holed up in and around Philippi. Okay, when this war is over and for the time being it's sort of settled that you know, the, the succession of emperors is kind of going to continue. Well, then you've got all these Roman legions out there. A lot of these are guys that are maybe at the end of their terms of enlistment. You've got thousands of them. You can't bring them all back to Rome. So what are you going to do with them? Well, the custom of the time was to, to divvy up land in the surrounding countryside and let the guys who were ready to retire go ahead and settle there. That's how you get all these Roman colonies of sort of, you know, retired ex-Roman soldiers popping up all over the empire. Uh, this, this is a good example of that. You think of this time, uh, this time in that part of the world as there being a lot of big cities everywhere, and that's true, but out in the countryside there were zillions of acres of land that were really basically sort of uninhabited and still wild, and so it was kind of like the settling in the American West almost. Uh, you had big parcels that if you had thousands and thousands of men that needed to settle, you could just divide up those parcels and write them a deed and let them stay there. And that's basically what happened in and around Philippi. So that Roman colony grew over a period of basically about 90 years between the time of that battle and the time when Paul arrives there. So think of 90 years as, as being like since about 1924 to us. So. It's not that long ago. Uh, there probably aren't any of us who actually remember 1924, but uh, you know, it, 1924 was the year that um, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue was first performed in New York. It was the year that uh, uh, Jimmy Carter was born. It was uh, the year that IBM was incorporated in New York State. I mean, you can go back and look up anything you want to about 1924, but just for, for reference, that's just how relatively short a period of time it was. So anybody who was in Philippi at this time would probably have known about these battles that occurred, would understand why it's a very Roman place. And so uh, you have to, I think it's, it's good to remember that when, when, when God gives Paul this dream and has a man in Macedonia saying, come and help us, that's the place that he's going to. It's not just a Greek place, it's also a very Roman place. Yes, sir. Question. Mm -hmm. um, this chapter starts out talking about Timothy and Paul and Silas and so uh -huh. they did this and they did that. Right. And in verse 10, it brings in, and we, and you know, they and then we. Well, that's Luke writing. Yeah. It is. And uh, thanks. That's, that's good because at it, it, the end, um, actually at the end of the last chapter, you get a little bit of the flavor of Luke himself having been there, you know. Um, but yeah, that, that's who that is. That's who the we is. It's Luke. 
let's see, we left off, I think, at the end of verse 12. Let me just read the next few verses here, beginning at 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside of the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So, you know, here Luke is telling us what business Lydia's in. Uh, he's, he's, he's telling us that she was a worshiper of God even though she was, was probably not a Hebrew. Um, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here you, you see a, a, a good example of, of what um, Matthew Henry in his commentary uh, points out, of God um, calling, not calling people out of their business to, to do something radically different with their lives in all cases, but in, in this case to simply um, uh, allow her the, the grace to, to live her life and run her business as, as someone who's un, now under the authority of Christ and, and, and understands that she has salvation uh, that way, and her household as well. At verse 15, let me read that again, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Well, now, that, and my household, or in her household as well, I want you to just kind of rem keep that in the back of your mind because a very similar phrase pops up a, a good deal later in the chapter in what I think are probably the key verses, uh, at least theologically, of what's going on in this entire chapter 16. Okay, beginning at verse 16 now. Um, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having come, become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Now, this, this story here uh, was actually the subject of a, of a very controversial sermon that I, I won't go into in detail that the uh, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church preached very early this, this same year, I think, down in the Caribbean someplace, where she actually interpreted... Um, these events as St. Paul having been uh, uh, completely mired in uh, a, a sinful outlook on life and not understanding that this slave girl had some kind of divine gift from God to, to prophesy and that when he cast the demon out of her he was actually uh, you know driving God out and so that whole that whole sermon <laughs> takes what the basic on the face of the text, it says and turns it completely upside down. So, uh, but but it is interesting to to note that here's this slave girl who who had a demon, and and follows Paul around around crying out, "These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation." Well, why 
Would somebody who's demon-possessed do that? Well, remember, Satan is a liar and the father of lies, and he will often resort to telling the truth about something if he knows that it can cause confusion. If without some explanation of what the way of salvation is, uh, you know, he, this slave girl can just kind of be background noise that distracts Paul and, and the people with him from their real mission. I mean, it's, it's, he, she's really just, it's like a crazy heckler in the crowd. So uh, finally, Paul, when he casts this demon out of her and basically heals her, well, now her owners are upset because she's been making a lot of money for them up to that point, which doesn't really sound like it's necessarily something from God. I think we'd agree if she's going around charging money to people to tell their fortune and, and uh, cutting open chickens and reading their entrails or whatever else it is that she's doing, you know, that's, that's clearly not from God. But um, so this, this actually causes some problems for him because when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Remember, it's a Roman city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks." Now, it has occurred to me that since Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, <clears throat> why at that juncture they didn't say, excuse me, hold on just a second before you beat us with rods and cast us into prison, you might want to know that we are, in fact, Roman citizens. Well, he doesn't do that. Is this because St. Paul is passive-aggressive and that he's just waiting for his chance to turn the tables on these people and, and show them up later? I don't think so. There's a distinction to be made here between uh, uh, enduring trials that we know uh, God wants us to endure for the sake of the gospel. Uh, there is also, on the other hand, and this will come a little bit later in the story, there's the honor of the gospel itself. Um, and some commentators think that um, the reason Paul waited until after they were free to bring up the fact that they were Roman citizens was so that rumors wouldn't spread about why they were put into prison in the first place. So, so nobody would, would, would have uh, a lingering story about what had happened when these people came to town and, and the, the story that they were preaching. Um, we don't know that for sure. That's just a way of trying to interpret the text and the sequence of events, but I, I think it's a fairly reasonable one. Um, so now they're in prison. Do you think there's a chance that the reason he didn't do it is because he knew the earthquake was coming. No. No, I don't. There's nothing, there's nothing in the text to suggest that Paul had any idea that there was an earthquake coming at all. Um, so I, I think he was just sort of uh, 
you know, it may have been that they didn't have the opportunity to invoke their Roman citizenship either. Remember, they, the, the, the slave owners have stirred up a big crowd in the marketplace. They've dragged them before these magistrates. And it may very well be that they looked at these magistrates and realized that even if they claimed to be Roman citizens, it wouldn't hold any water with them at the moment. Uh, because they were being accused, remember what they're being accused of. Um, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Well, it's a false accusation. There's really nothing in Christianity as such that's completely against Roman law at this time, but uh, that's what they were being accused of. But I, I don't think so. I mean, I, there's no way to know, but it, there's, I think that if, if, if Paul did know that the earthquake was coming, that he, at some point he would have told Luke, hey, you know, I knew this was coming anyway, and you can write that down in the story, because because he had the he had the he had the dream about the man co calling to come to Macedonia and help us, and and that got written down, but 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 the other didn't. So. I think the Holy Spirit very often uh, moves us in righteousness. Oh sure, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so they're in jail now. They've got their in the in the inner prison. And they've got their feet in stocks, so they're they're locked up tight. Um, and here we come to to the part of the story where I think the probably the the, the strongest theological point gets made, um, beginning at verse 25. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now that's that's kind of interesting. You know, you you would you would think that if uh, if these guys really did have a message that was uh, uh, not lawful for Romans to accept or practice, that uh, you know the the other prisoners might be annoyed with them uh, for praying and singing hymns and might be hollering at them to shut up, but they're not. Their their message is being heard, and it's being heard by people who, like themselves, are in jail and who uh, are pretty much at a very low ebb, you know, I mean, it, it can't get too much worse for you in uh, 47 AD than to be cast into the inner prison of a Roman jail. I mean, that's, that's pretty serious business. You don't have too much farther down to go than that other than being dead. So, yeah, probably. So anyway, there they are. And it, it is interesting that the other prisoners are listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, that clearly is a, a, has some supernatural elements to it. The fact that the doors came open, well, okay, you can understand how an earthquake might make that happen. But everyone's bonds to become unfastened? I mean, if you're shackled and chained and your feet are in stocks, you know, earthquake isn't necessarily going to make that uh, pop loose. You know, I mean, it's 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 something's happened here, and and it's clearly uh, clearly of God, I think. So, with uh, the wording of mm -hmm. everyone is still here, every, everyone's uh, bonds were broke, unfastened. Mm -hmm. um, was that everyone being the? Uh, I mean, uh, Paul and Silas, just the two of them, or all of the prisoners? I take it to mean all of them, but I haven't I haven't looked to see what the original Greek says and what that word everyone is and whether it includes everybody else in the jail. But um, 
what comes next though is when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So it probably would have allowed almost pretty much everybody to, to get loose if they wanted to. The translators mm -hmm. of the Bible of this passage would have said Paul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bond, mm -hmm. sure. Rather than mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so all the prisoners stayed in there with them? That's what it sounds like. Now, remember, they were listening to, to the prayers and to the hymns that they were singing, too. So, I mean, Paul and Silas were ministering to these guys in, in prison. Um, you know, maybe they just knew better than to try to run away because they'd be hunted down. On the other hand, maybe uh, the Holy Spirit was keeping them there. Because re remember, what happens later to, to the Philippian jailer and his whole household is something that's clearly of God. Um, and, and, you know, who knows who this jailer was? It's quite possible that his, you know, great-grandfather might have fought in one of those Roman battles 89 years earlier. Uh, and and he, he might have inherited this job through his, you know, family line or something. I don't know. Uh, it's also a little unclear as to exactly where his house is. Did he sort of live above the storefront and have a house right above the jail, or was it down the street and around the corner? It would probably have needed to be somewhere pretty close by, because if he's the jailer and has the authority over everybody that's in there, he's going to need to be able to check on things frequently uh, in order to keep that job. So it's probably his house is probably not too far away. So when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. To me, those three or four verses there are probably the key to this whole chapter. Uh, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because remember, he's, he's just moments ago faced his own death and, and known that his own death was going to have to come at his own hand because the fate that would have awaited him at the hands of the authorities if he had let all these prisoners escape would have been far worse than you know falling on his own sword. But... Even at that, that's a, that's a pretty hard thing to have to contemplate. And, and just seconds before, he was on the verge of, of thinking he was about to have to do this when Paul cries out to him. So here, this guy has gone from having a pretty cushy job in a prosperous Roman colony. Earthquake comes. He thinks all the prisoners are loose. He thinks he's going to have to die to pay for it, and he's about to kill himself, and, and, and at that probably lowest point in his life. Again, you know, Christ reaches out to us when we're at our lowest frequently, and that's, that's his power really is made perfect in our weakness. We hear this over and over again, but here's just another example of it. And, and Paul says, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And, and in that instant, the jailer's heart is converted. He, he knows that a moment ago he was, he was about to have to fall on his own sword and, and die a very painful death at his own hand. And, and now 
this guy that he had locked up in the inner jail and put in stocks is telling him, don't worry, we're all here. We're not running away. So that changes his heart, and he, he says to Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they simply say, and this is as close a condensation of the gospel as you'll, you'll find anywhere in the Bible, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Um, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So still under arrest. Oh, sure. But he's he, you know, he's moved them to the minimum security facility, his own house, and he and he's given them better chow. We're house arrest, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, "Let those men go." And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, "The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore." Come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And, you know, you could, you could make Paul out to be a little re revengeful here, but that's not really what the text is saying. Because remember, the thing that he's complaining about the most is that they've, they've been um, th thrown into prison as Roman citizens without having really been justly condemned by a fair trial. And they've been thrown into prison, and now they want to throw us out secretly. So they've done this thing, this harm to them has been done publicly, but now they want to redress that harm and, and, and do that in secret. Well, is that going to advance the gospel? Probably not, because there are people in this town that will remember them having been beaten and dragged into jail, and they maybe won't know that they were Roman citizens and that it wasn't fair and that the magistrates later changed their, life, uh, their minds and, and, and let them go. So there, there is a perfectly legitimate reason for Paul here to insist that these magistrates come back and, and do this uh, publicly to, to let them go. <clears throat> no, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So now I, I, I want to go back and just look for a minute again at these verses. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, um, you and your household. We heard that about Lydia and her family and household, and now we're hearing it about the jailer. Um, I kind of like that. It doesn't really have the, the element of it that, that requires so much of the individual that, that we get in some preaching in some Christian denominations about how you've got to make a personal decision to uh, accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It's like, it's like unless you really 
work hard to make that decision in your mind and in your heart, then it's not going to happen. Well, we, we know from so many other places in the Bible that often God exerts His will upon us. He calls us often when we don't even know we're being called. Um, and and I've, I've, I've got another little question here, uh, and it's got to do with this you and your household. The same writer, Luke, back in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 12, says, has Jesus saying these very words, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Okay, well, how can both of these passages be true? How can Jesus be saying this? And how can, can Paul and Silas be saying, you and your household, just like that? Well, we have to remember when they were said and when, what the conditions were that existed. Um, this passage in Luke and elsewhere in Matthew, um, I think really has more to do with how people, how Jesus says people are going to react to His own incarnation. In other words, when Jesus uh, comes to earth and walks the earth and lives His life and does His ministry, that good news that He's bringing to people is so upsetting of the old order that they will hate Him for it, many of them. And so within a household, you'll have people that get it and believe it, and you'll have other people that don't. But remember what God's ultimate purposes are. His ultimate purposes are to draw all people unto Himself. So now that Christ has gone to the cross, He's paid the price for all human sin, He's, he's been resurrected and He's ascended into heaven, we're, we're now, it's a different deal. And so when, when Paul and Silas say to Lydia or to the jailer in Philippi, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, they mean it. It's true. And I think this kind of points, like I said, to God's ultimate purposes about unity in the body. And we know that, that families can support each other in faith. We know that within a church, individual members can support each other in faith at times when maybe our own faith may be, seem like it's dead or, or it's hard to find or we just... We're, we're at a low point. Other people can sustain us through their own prayers, through their counsel, uh, within families, within churches. We know this to be true. So there, there is a lot to this unity in the body. There is a lot to this whole idea of the, the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of thee. That's all true. So we've all heard of guilt by association. Well, is, is this the opposite? Is it forgiveness by association? Uh, maybe. Uh, look at the Philippian jailer and his household. Let's say he's got a hypothetical servant living in his household who obtained salvation just because his master believes uh, through no doing of his own. Does that what does that point to? It, it really points to the, the primacy of God's will and the fact that, that, that He, it, 
has expressed nothing less than, than that ultimate will, which is to draw all people unto himself. And now the bells are ringing, and I think we got through this <laughs> without having to stall for time too much more than my little sojourn into Roman military history for the first five minutes. <laughs>